This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hello, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited to bring you another guest interview today with another book launch that came out the beginning of March. Today, I'll be talking with Emma Brown, and she is a reporter on the Washington Post's investigative team. She previously worked as a wilderness ranger and as a middle school math teacher before discovering journalism during an internship at High country news uh, which was a magazine that covers the american west she also served as an interim at the center for investigative reporting and the boston globe before joining the washington post in 2009 so very nice to have you on the show thank you so much for having me i appreciate it so your book just launched and i just was saying before we uh, hit the record button here that i've been chewing through this and i'm just absolutely gobsmacked um it's so it's called to raise a boy classrooms locker rooms bedrooms and the hidden struggles of american boyhood tell us about the inspiration for for writing this title well my son i have two kids i have a daughter who is now six and a son who's now three um and so when my son was born uh i was home nursing him when the first harvey weinstein stories broke and then i sort of watched as i was scrolling through my phone um, as those, you know, other Me Too stories erupted across the media. And I found myself really sitting with, how am I going to raise my son to be different? Um, and that was sort of the seed of the book. But I, I found that, um, you know, I didn't have instincts for that question, to answer that question in the same way that I had instincts to answer that question for my daughter. I knew a lot about what I wanted to do for her to help her resist the messages that get beamed at girls from the time they're tiny. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know any of that for, for my son because I've never been a boy. So this book was an opportunity to travel around the country and talk with hundreds of people, coaches and teachers, 
and researchers, and of course, boys and young men and their parents um, about what it's like to be a boy in America right now and what we need to do better for boys. And I think I'll just close and say, I was really shocked to learn. I think I thought life is difficult for girls. They face a lot of challenges growing up. And my takeaway from this book was life is really hard for boys too. And they face a lot of challenges. Yeah, and, and I love that you poised in the book something that's near and dear to my heart and, and in Lyrian psychology, which is my training and background, which is if we're going, if our end goal is social equality, then there's a part of for both genders to be having their eyes open for how they cooperate, how they engage with one another in respectful means that that isn't just about empowering women, it's also about empowering men, but not in a way that t- teaches disrespect to women. So there's both sides of the equation have to be addressed. Um, and we have spent a long time in conversation about the girl side of it, not so much on, on for boys and men. Right. I mean, the, the family therapist, Terry Real, I quote in the book is saying, um, we teach boys to have themselves as in cut themselves in half, right? To sort of disown the parts of themselves that are quote unquote feminine, which are not just the parts that like pink or, or you know, like sparkly dresses, but are really important, deep human uh, connection skills, articulating and recognizing emotions, you know, and um, and so, yeah, we, we spend a lot of time telling our girls, hey, you can be and do anything you want. You can you can be, quote, do the things that were reserved for boys in the past. But we haven't given boys that same attention to say you can do the things that have always been reserved for girls in the past. You can have feelings. You can have feelings. Yeah. I mean, what have the- strong friendships and, you know, and be proud of it and not, you know, well, and the problem is, and, and we'll get into this and then not be ridiculed for being gay because you have close friendships with boys, right? Some of these, these stereotypes that they get pinned into. Tell me in the timeline of writing this book. So you're at, at home, you've got this son. And I think like, I think you and I have in common, you have three older brothers, right? I do. Yeah, I'm the young. I'm the youngest, the only girl with three older brothers too. So that kind of resonated with me. And I had two girls. I didn't. I didn't. To your point, I, I really didn't know much about the male perspective, even though I was raised with these boys. I mean, I got kind of socialized in, in the boys' world from them, but I was not prepared to uh, to know what life was like as a boy. That's for sure. So how did this tie into then um, the uh, coverage that you ended up doing for the um, uh, Dr. Christine uh, Blassie Ford's uh, story or, uh, you know, her her testimonial or how how did that all play out? Uh, Well, after this maternity leave that I just mentioned with my son, I went back to work on the Post's investigative team. And uh, and I ended up writing the story um, that year in which Christine Blasey Ford came forward to accuse Brett Kavanaugh, who is then a nominee for the Supreme Court of sexual assault when they were both in high school years ago. And I mean, how does that tie into the book? I think I was astonished at the number of emails uh, and messages that I got uh, after breaking that story from people who said that they had been sexually assaulted as children in, you know, in high school or before high school. And they were wanting to share their story sometimes, you know, with me, sometimes for the first time, having never spoken about it before. And I just really was struck by the fact that we have in the last few years, we've had this reckoning around sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. There's been much, much debate and discussion about it in colleges and on college campuses. And we have never really talked about 
children and what children experience when it comes to sexual harassment and assault and why, why we then have a culture where it seems so prevalent among older people. So that was another element of what I wanted to explore in this book. I'm just going to read a couple of the stats that are on the the cover jacket here, and then we'll jump we'll jump into the content of that the first chapter and get rolling on what you share in the book. Um, but it says here that you uh, uncovered 23% of boys believe men should use violence to get respect. That 22% of men in an incoming college freshman class said they had already committed sexual violence. 58% of young adults say they had never had a conversation with their parents about respect and care in sexual relationships. And that men are nearly four times more likely than women to die by suicide. Nearly four million men experience sexual violence each year. Were you shocked when you were discovering these numbers? I absolutely was. I mean, as I said, I sort of headed into this having thought a lot about girls and women's experiences, but these, every single one of those numbers that you just read was sort of a window into a different part of, of discovery for me. I mean, the idea that 22% of, of men in an incoming freshman class had already committed some sort of sexual violence to me says, wow, when boys are waiting until high school or college to have their first real conversations about consent and even sex ed, that is so late. That is way too late. And so, yes, I mean, I, I had no idea really about these various parts of boys' lives. So, it, and, and so the book starts by saying that we actually have this, this uh, quiet epidemic of sexual assault that's actually directed at boys, that they, that they themselves are not just uh, perpetrators having not been properly educated, and we'll get to, to that, um, but that they're really uh, this unrecognized recipient of sexual harassment uh, and sexual exploitation that um, it gets either not reported or minimized. That was shocking to me. And it was why I started the book with this chapter, because it was the most profoundly sort of upsetting and transformative part of my reporting, where I had to really reckon with my own assumptions that I was carrying around about boys. So, you know, you read a stat a minute ago that one in four men at some point in their lifetime, the victim of some sort of sexual violence. And for boys under 18, it might be as high as one in six. So it's an astonishing number of boys who are, who are, you know, trying to handle this often on their own because of the shame associated with telling anyone. And it's their shame associated with telling anyone. And it's the adults around them and our own inability to see boys as victims and to really recognize the kind of support they need to heal through through traumas like that. Some of the stories that you shared, and I and I appreciate, first of all, that, uh, that you went out and, and, and had these honest conversations with these families, um, but then their willingness to share their stories and let them be published. Because I think that when you just sort of hear the stats and you don't sort of hear the story behind it, it's it can be shocking, but you're, you still are in kind of disbelief. You're like, how does that happen? That's not going to happen to my boy or in this corner of the world. But then as you start to share those individual stories, and it really does embed you in this feeling of like, that could be my child. That could so easily be happening on that school bus, or that could have been that principal who said, oh, it's just horseplay. Why are you being so uptight about it? Uh, it, it just so grounded it for me. That's what it looks like. That's how it happens. Yes, that's how it gets diminished. So I really appreciated that aspect of the book. Um, I'm sure that must have been very hard for you to hear the pains that these families carry. It is. It is hard, but it, you're right about the power of story to help us uh, 
to, to help us have empathy for what boys go through. And so I tell a number of stories um, of rather detailed stories about the kinds of sexual assault boys experience. Uh, you know, sometimes it's this kind of sexualized attack in the, in the context of sports, which gets called hazing, but is actually sexual assault and sometimes rape, depending on what happens to boys. And then sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's older men, sometimes it's older women preying on boys, sometimes it's girls their, their age. But when we talk about the power of story, I mean, this is something we don't talk about in our culture very much. And I think that, you know, that contributes to this cycle of silence about it. And so I tell the story in the book about um, the the uh, professional baseball player, R.A. Dickey, who was a, a Mets player um, and sort of at the height of his career, he wrote a memoir about his life. And he he wrote about being sexually assaulted by an old, when he was a child by an older female babysitter and then later by a, an older boy. And what a lifelong impact that had on him, the shame, his sort of inability to, to cope with his family relationships until he got therapy for that. And I wrote about a boy who was seven, you know, in seventh grade reading this memoir and this reading and seeing that someone he admired, someone who was successful had had this happen to him, gave this boy the the encouragement and sort of the power to go talk to his mom and tell her he had been molested by his principal uh, and then to go tell police. And, and that principal is now in prison. And so, and this boy said, you know, I feel like R.A. Dickey saved my life because he told this story. So I think, you know, the power of telling these stories, we've seen it with women over the last few years. And, and I hope that more boys and men can, um, can help each other by telling their stories in that way. Yeah. Um, so you um, also talk about what really is the underlying science behind gender and differences between boys and girls and some of these myths that we carry that really we need to shake off now. It's just. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of talk and a lot, you know, when you're, whenever you're pregnant, people want to know what are you having? And there's a lot of talk about who your kid's going to be based on what their genitals are. And I think my takeaway from learning about the biological and cultural differences uh, between boys and girls is that when your kid is born and you learn uh, what genitals they have, you really don't know who they're going to be. And so one researcher put it to me like, it's like language. Our brains can learn any language, but they have to be exposed to the language to learn it. And, you know, the same is so true with so many aptitudes and traits in our culture. So we don't want to limit boys by only teaching them or exposing them to what we think is boyish because that's, then that's all they'll learn. So as a parent, I really think it's important to sort of expose my kids to both my kids to experiences and passions and aptitudes across the sort of traditional gender spectrum. And they will gravitate towards what they love and, and, uh, and at least have the opportunity uh, to learn whatever sort of whatever they love. And when your daughter goes for the dolls and your son goes for the trucks, that may be which true. is what happened <laughs> yeah, which absolutely may be true um but but to your point it doesn't mean that we don't uh we don't stop considering a range of experiences and we certainly don't say put down your sister's dolls so that's for girls <laughs> right I mean yeah. we don't shame kids for their interests and I think that was a huge takeaway for me the corrosive power of shame uh, and how much shame boys face whenever they try to do or express interest in anything that's girly or, as you said, 
quote unquote gay, like they are, that is so off limits for boys. And they learn to really disdain then girls and girlishness in a way that's not good for anybody. So uh, yeah, I think we should, I think we should give our boys access to, to everything without shame. And, and, you know, there's where I'm saying we have to work both sides of the equation, because when the biggest insult you can give a man is that he has a quality that he's something like a girl, a woman, doesn't that say something about how women are held in esteem? Do, do, do you know what I mean? It does. I right by there, does. that says yeah. our position in life has to be lower. And if we're the insult, that's that carries weight, right? So lots of work to do there. So it's it's both nature and nurture, you say. Um, and but you you said that, that we need to get rid of this word toxic masculinity. Um, and I don't know if it's an exactly the same replacement, but you um, um, you talk about the the man box or the boy. Uh, what's the term? The the boy the box. The you know, man, box. man box. Yeah. yeah is that the, is, so describe those two. So it's just, you know, what you mean by those and, and why toxic masculinity, which I am guilty of saying until I read your book. Um, <laughs> let forgiven. us know why we need to drop that. I, I say in the book, I think we should lay off the term because um, when I talk to boys, they have a, many of them have a strong reaction to that term. And one boy said to me, if you use that term, no one's going to listen to anything else you say, because and what he was saying to me is, you know, we feel judged when you use that word or we feel like you're attacking boys or masculinity in general. And that's not I, that's not how I mean to talk to boys at all or what I want them to believe. And I, I just think we should use terminology that that um, enhances the chance for a productive conversation. So I talk about pressures that boys face as boys, which is um, language that I think works well for opening up a conversation, or the man box, which is a term that um, men seeking to sort of broaden ideas about masculinity have used for a long time to describe the set of really rigid and traditional expectations of men, right? Like you're dominant, you're self-reliant, you are hypersexual, you are not gay, um, all those sorts of very traditional expectations. And, and widening it, meaning you can still be very much a man and, you and know, and, 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 and not fit, not, ha- you know, to be okay asking for help and being okay being vulnerable and wearing your emotions on the outside. And those, that's, those can all reside in a man too. Absolutely. Yes. So trying to break down the walls of those man box uh, of the man box and show that, um, being a real man does not mean a quote unquote real man uh, does not mean you have to fit within the walls of that box. And I, you know, it's important because, you know, it's obviously important for girls and women because some of the, those qualities when men and boys really believe they have to live up to the rules of the man box um, uh, are risk factors for violence against women. But they're also really important for boys in and of themselves because they are also risk factors for health, you know, physical and, and mental health outcomes. So, uh, you know, I think we, we need to do, we need to do better for our boys in terms of breaking down those walls, both for our daughter's sakes and for our son's sakes. And so, you know, the, another big part that you talk about in the book is about, uh, just like just like sex education, not just role education, not just expanding the the, the um, man box to have a broader definition, but literally that our young boys growing into men and young adults are uh, really paying the price because we seem to have missed the boat on the importance or the content 
that's needed to give a good education to our young men about sex. Absolutely. I mean, sex education is so important. It's part of, it's, it's, it's part of the, one of those important parts of our lives and we are uh, allowing it to evaporate out of our schools. Um, the research shows that fairly clearly. And we are also as parents, this is another one of the stats you read at the top there, often not talking to boys about what it means to have a healthy and respectful, intimate relationship. So there's a vacuum of information there. Um, and at the same time, boys are really aware of the sort of new accountability around sexual misbehavior. So they feel pressure. They're not getting a lot of guidance, but many boys are watching online pornography. And, you know, online pornography is filled with images that are not consensual or respectful and really give boys a misimpression about how sex works. I mean, one boy I talked to when he was in high school, he had been watching porn since fifth grade at the suggestion of his friends. And he told me, you know, I just sort of grew up thinking when you want to have sex, you just have it. You don't need to ask because that's what he had learned from watching. And nobody had corrected that, that understanding until he, uh, he was in a porn literacy course that I write about late in high school. So I, I think we owe it to our sons to help them uh, navigate this really important part of their lives by starting those conversations early, like as early as kindergarten or preschool with talking about personal boundaries and respecting personal boundaries. That is a conversation that can start when kids are super young. You shared a story of a boy kind of on a first date and they're, they're having, or I don't know if it was the first date, but they were having their first sexual encounter and he starts choking her and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that was a scene from a movie, but it, oh, it, was, it, matched, oh, okay. yeah. it matched what actually young women told me. Um, two women, I went to, uh, to visit a group of young people in Maine and two of the women there told me about being in relationships and sexual relationships where they're boyfriends just out of nowhere started choking them without asking them. And they thought that that was because that was what their boyfriends had learned from watching pornography. Sex researchers say that this is becoming more common. And like parents, I think, don't know that, you know, they need to be talking about don't choke your girlfriend unless, <laughs> unless she's, you know, unless you've discussed it first. But really, um, you know, I think if we're starting the conversation really early with boys about what, what it means to be respectful of someone else's space and someone else's body, we'll get there with talking about some of those more difficult things later on. And, and then you also highlighted, uh, I'm not going to say his name, probably. I think he's a Canadian stand-up comedian. Yeah, there's a, a chapter, Grace, the, the woman who came forward about the, the date that went so wrong. Um, Aziz, uh, what's his? Aziz Ansari. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Can you tell just a short a little bit about, about that encounter? Because that was sort of uh, helps uh, amplify where the ambiguity can come in for the players involved and for, for society trying to make a call on this, too. Yeah, if you remember back to this was um, came later in the Me Too movement, and it was not a story of sexual predation in the way that some of the other really horrific stories were. It was, it was um, more. It was a situation where this young woman had gone on a date with Aziz Ansari, who was a um, uh, you know a star, a, a famous and older person. Um, and, you know, she told her story through, uh, babe, which is an online outlet and talked about kind of trying in words and then non-verbally to show her discomfort as he came on to her after they, they had dinner and they went back to his apartment and he was coming on to her and he wasn't picking up her signs that she was really, really uncomfortable. And so she told this story and, and people had very strong reactions 
at the time. They either thought she's this is so unfair. There's no way this guy knew that she felt uncomfortable. He shouldn't have to pay a price for her inability to articulate how she was feeling on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, others said, gosh, thank goodness somebody is sort of extending the conversation to how do we have respectful, you know, obviously everybody knows that um, that uh, the attacking someone violently um, or attacking somebody at work who's your underling is wrong. This is a more gray area, much more probably common kind of situation. So it's great that she's opening up this conversation. So I went and I spoke to her uh, about sort of what life has been like since that roiled her life. But I think one of the takeaways was if you go back and actually read what she said at the time about what had happened to her, there were a number of ways in which she tried to tell him she was uncomfortable and he he didn't respond to those signs. So what does that mean for what we teach boys? Well, what we shouldn't teach them is just plain old no means no, because it's really just not that research shows that is not how people communicate. People don't scream no and run out of the room, especially when there's such a power differential in the room, right? Yeah. When you're, she's a young woman and he's a rich, famous guy, she's, she's, she's not going to scream no and run out of the room. Uh, and so I think, you know, it showed me that we need to talk to boys about how real life communication happens, how body language uh, is a really important part of communication and how, uh, how if there's any doubt in your mind about how someone feels, the answer is always stop and, and, and wait and let the other person initiate. Yeah. And, and here again, we go to the early training that we didn't necessarily mean to train our young men around, but if not corrected, I grew up with the cartoon Pepe Le Pew. Do you remember him? He was the skunk that was always the, 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 the more going after the cat. And she, the cat clearly does not want to be hugged and kissed. And he just, you know, keeps going and going. And, and Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler, um, you know, just dominating her. And so the story of that in order for women to, to follow their gender role, to be pure and pristine, they're supposed to look like they aren't sexual which we, again, we know is not true. Um, and, uh, and that they're supposed to push into persuasion. They think that's part of the courtship dance. Oh, and absolutely. I mean, one boy it's said romanticized me, in movies everywhere, everywhere. It is the message that both boys and girls get about how that dance is supposed to happen. And it's a really important sort of myth for us to unravel for kids because, um, you know, we can't have boys growing up thinking that when a girl says no, she doesn't really mean no, she's just playing coy. But I think boys do grow up learning that. In fact, one boy, uh, he was a young man at uh, in a college class that I sat in on uh, about sexual consent. He said, well, you know, we're taught no means no. And so we learn that means we need to get her to say yes. And I think that so pithily summed up the problem with how we teach and talk about consent. And and uh, and also um, challenging that women don't want to be sexually active because actually when we look at um, non consensual sex we have a, we have statistics on how many men w did not want to consent and the women were the aggressors and and neither did they apply the rules of, of boundaries right so this idea that women are always more reticent than men when it comes to sex really can be so confusing for young, for young people i think when they have sexual encounters like when a, when boys have 
sexual encounters that they don't want, but they've been told they, oh, you men, men and boys, real men and boys always want sex. Um, that's a very confusing thing for a boy to work through. And so I think we need to be very clear that it's, it is, it is absolutely manly to know what you want and to know that what you don't want and to express that rather than telling boys that real men, you know, are always up for sex. Well, and wouldn't it be nice if whatever movies are watching on Netflix or back in the cinema when we finally get to get together and go to a cinema, <laughs> wouldn't Ooh. it be nice if there was a scene, like a love scene, where you actually had the leading male and the leading female actually saying some of these lines, like, you know, is this okay? And do you like that? And, you know, like, it's honest to God, it's just really, you do not see it anywhere. Well, I did notice that um, I took shortly before everything, I think this was shortly before everything shut down, uh, I took my daughter to see Frozen 2 in the theater. And the main male character, that Kristoff, I think, does say to Anna at one point, may I kiss you? Would that be all right? And I was like, oh, wow, uh, that is a great, that's a great role model for kids to, to hear that instead of, you know, having him sweep her off her feet without asking. And, uh, and so perhaps things are starting to change a bit. Uh, so, you know, as we're giving advice to parents, part of it is the things that we do to educate our own children and advocate for them. Um, but how do we, how do we advocate for getting better sex ed in our schools? I mean, it is supposed to be part of the curriculum. They've just revamped it here in, in Ontario. It was quite controversial, of course, uh, about what you were allowed to talk about at what grade people like me that are very liberal minded were like, yeah, they can handle this in grade six. Why, why, yes, share it all. Education does nothing but help our society. Um, but it was very controversial here. But I, you know, it's um, it's still not embraced, and it and and maybe it's still not a wide enough curriculum. And maybe there's something that as parents we can advocate to try to get better curriculum in place. I'm glad you bring this up because I think, um, you know, part of what needs to change is the way we as parents parent, probably, um, but, uh, but we cannot do it alone. And we need help from the institutions who are helping us to raise our sons, which includes schools and faith institutions and sports teams and all the rest. Um, I think, you know, I think schools are going to be in a really difficult position over the next year as they try to come back and just have normal operations uh, in, the, in the aftermath, hopefully the aftermath of this pandemic. Um, and so I think that colors my thinking a little bit because I think, you know, one theory for why things, uh, why sex ed has become more rare in the United States since 2000, and I'm not sure about in Canada, but the uh, sort of advent of, of um, the No Child Left Behind Act here, which, you know, brought standardized testing in math and reading and writing to the fore, sometimes to the exclusion of other things. So if you think about all that schools have on their plate right now, like how can they take on, you know, more? And so as a parent, I think to myself, well, if, 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 if it's not going to happen in schools immediately, how else can I get it to my, get this information to my child? Um, for me, when I was growing up, that meant my parents enrolled me in a really comprehensive year long sex, sex education course through the Unitarian church, because they have a really, Oh, <laughs> I'm Unitarian too. You? How old? You did the owl program. 
Yes, I'm so old that it was called About Your Sexuality. Okay, yeah. Predated Al, but it was like a, an earlier iteration. And, it, and you know, so my parents weren't really comfortable talking with me about this stuff, but they made sure I had the information in a different way. So I think we as parents, like if you if you see your school and you're, you're just thinking, man, my school's drowning, just getting back up and running. There are other resources in the community that can help you. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, the, the, um, the other thing about high schools too, because a lot of the, you know, we, we think a lot of this, a lot of these issues happen when our kids go off to college, but I was sort of, you know, again, reminded in reading your book, a lot of this stuff is happening in high schools and, um, you know, it's the, here are the institutions that are also overseeing our kids and their conduct, but it's also hard for them because like, if it's something like two students and they're sexting and around goes a photograph of, you know, of a girl topless or whatever, the school is expected to step in, but it's kind of happening in the digital space. It's kind of between the parents and traditionally, you know, whether these were in-person assaults, you know, groping girls at their lockers or whatever, when these things escalate to the principal, they either get it's sort of the one extreme is diminished, like, you know, get over yourselves, it's not important, or they or the pendulum swings the other way. And we say, listen, we're living in this hashtag me too culture, we got to take everything seriously. And then we get expulsions and zero tolerance. And, you know, and neither of those work, you say that we, we that we need to find this other way of responding. That's also in a sense, I think, part of our sex education, but it's in how we how do we handle when mistakes are made? Yeah, I think schools have been pretty ham-handed about dealing with sexual harassment and sexual assault. And as you say, online, you know, whether it's sexting or revenge porn or, or what have you. Um, and so I, in the book, I write about perhaps the, the, uh, the route of restorative justice being a way forward. I mean, restorative justice is the idea that you sit with a person that you hurt, you, you acknowledge what you did. They tell you how it hurt them. Um, and then you, you come up with a plan to in some way repair that harm. And sometimes it's uh, criticized for being too easy on the person who did the harm. But what I learned is if it's done right, which is not always uh, like so many things, it can be done well or it can be done poorly. But if it's done right, that it can be really um, transformative for a boy to take responsibility for what he's done and to really acknowledge that he hurt somebody. It's a very different experience than say, going through the, uh, through whether, whether it's a school discipline um, or, a, or a criminal justice kind of situation where you're sort of encouraged by the very nature of the situation to deny that you did anything wrong. Um, and so, you know, I think the question for us should be how to, how do we, when boys make mistakes, when boys hurt somebody, how do we help them learn how to take responsibility and be accountable and learn from those mistakes and also re try repair the harm that they've done, especially uh, young people, you know, sort of flirting and, and, and making mistakes. I mean, that happens with young people, right? So we can't just ignore it because then they won't learn, but we don't want them, you know, their, their whole lives to be upended by, by, um, by rather mild uh, transgressions, right? So, so I think that finding a way, as I said, to help boys take a responsibility is really crucial. Yeah, and you gave the example uh, in the book of um, the young adopted Indian boy who mistakes were made, and and uh, but the the punitive or harsher tactics of upending him from the school made all this collateral damage in his life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if, if we always go into this idea of how do we be, how do we be corrective and educative and healing and growth minded, um, that has to be at the fore, you know, in our, in, in the process that we decide that we're going to pick whatever's best for the situation. Well, it we wasn't know- helpful. It wasn't helpful for that poor guy. Right. And suspension and expulsion usually aren't. And the research says that very clearly. We also know that boys and particularly boys of color are um, suspended and expelled more than white boys. And so, you know, I think that there is uh, there are questions, too, about equity and how punishments are doled out. I mean, that particular boy you're talking about, he said some really crude things to girls. And he also told investigators, well, I I made that joke because I heard someone else make that joke and everyone laughed. And so, you know, he was, his argument was like, I'm, I'm living in the culture. I'm living in just trying to get along Uh, (laughs) where, which is, um, uh, you know, I felt some empathy for that, that boys are living in a culture where they're trying to be cool and trying to belong. And when they look around them and most of the sexual harassment and, and sexual impropriety they see goes unpunished, how confusing for that, for the hammer to suddenly fall in, in one situation rather than another. Yeah. And, and I've had that with young clients too, where they've told me that they're mimicking and they don't even know what they're saying. I mean, they're so, there's, they're so uneducated because their sexual development isn't there. They don't even get what they're doing or saying. They just heard an older brother or someone on TV say it and thinking, I guess that's what you say. And I'm just like, wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've got. This is why we have to have these conversations with kids so that they know what they're saying when they say some of these things and they, they understand, um, they understand the language they're using. Yeah. Um, tell us about all boys schools or all girls schools. What's your, what's your thought on that? What I thought was really interesting about, about what I found from the, the research on all boys schools was, First of all, there's been so much research on academic and career outcomes from these from single sex schools and very little in sort of social outcomes. And so I talked to graduates of all boys schools who said, you know, some of them said, well, I loved my experience. But then when I left, I really felt like I had this deficit of having not worked with girls and women outside of, you know, seeing them at parties and dances. Um, and I think that the, the, the Me Too movement has forced boys schools um, at least some boys' schools to to start thinking in in much more deeply than they have before about what does it mean to have a school where boys never interact you know never interact with girls in an academic or sort of um, uh, in an academic setting. So many boys' schools are now looking for ways to bring girls into the not to bring girls into the school necessarily, but to have more interaction. And I just thought that was very interesting that heads of boys' schools are saying we need to give our boys more more experience with girls. Wow. Well, I, we, um, uh, I have clients that have their sons in all boys schools here and they were sending me uh, some footage uh, that was made for the international women's day that we just had. And I was very, I was very impressed, um, with the content and the effort, the work that they put into that. So I thought, yeah, they're injecting some, (laughs) some good female content there. Anyways, I don't know what it looks like the rest of the year there, but, uh, but that was just, just happened recently. Um, Is there anything else about the book that you want? I mean, I want every person to pick this up. I think it's an important read, whether you're raising a boy or you're raising a girl. Um, And uh, uh, any other pieces of uh, that you'd like to share and, and calls to action? I guess what I want to say is I, I felt we've talked about a lot of things that are 
not going well um, in the last <laughs> little good bit. News. But yeah, I, I really, I began my research for this book with a lot of trepidation about what the world holds for my son and for, for all boys. And I really finished with a, with a giant dose of, of hope. I mean, I just, I, I met so many people and organizations who are working to improve sex ed, working to give boys more latitude to be their full selves. Um, and so many boys themselves who are leading those conversations. I mean, I met one, uh, one middle schooler in California who said to me, he said, you know, that saying boys will be boys. Well, that means boys can be compassionate. That means boys can be creative. We don't have to be held back by social stereotypes. And I just loved that kid. And when I think about, think about the future for my son, I just think I'm so lucky to be raising him now um, when there's more, I think more attention being paid to the particular needs of boys to 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 thrive so uh so yeah I, I think there are some solutions in this book both in terms of things that parents can do but importantly things that our communities can be doing to help support parents yeah i i, I agree that if when we look at any social change all the stakeholders need to be willing to have some skin in the game right at, at every level and we need this sort of concerted effort to work on it together but you've you've highlighted that it really is work that needs to be done and yes we have to get out from underneath this pandemic but neither can we ignore the mental health crises of some of our boys you say one of the protective factors is having that strong strong relationship right absolutely i mean having a strong relationship with a caring adult protects boys from so much that we want to protect them from, from substance abuse and depression, but it also just gives them, I think, a safe place to always come back to and know that they are loved and be, you know, be their full selves and know that they're loved as their full selves. So that even if they have to go out in the world and uh, uh, do what it takes to belong and fit in, that they can always come back to home base and know who they are and, and how important that is as they grow up and sort of figure out how they're going to be in the world. Yeah. Beautiful sentiment. How can people continue finding out more about you, your resources? Let me give you a shameless moment to plug yourself here. <laughs> uh, I have a website that is to raise a boy.com. Um, and my events are listed there. I would love for folks to come to some of the, the remaining book um, bookstore events on that calendar. And there's also a contact form. I'd love to hear from people um, about what else I should be paying attention to and writing about as I move forward. That's what I'll, I'll put all of that in the show notes for people okay. as well. Well, thank you. So very nice to meet a um, baby girl with three older brother, Unitarian fellow parent <laughs> advocate. <laughs> I hope we have an opportunity to speak again and good luck with the rest of the book launch. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.